As always, we are recapping the parasha of the previous week. So we are on Parashat Vayigash, very, very powerful, very dramatic parasha. This is a parasha where the uh, brothers, or really the family that, that has been separated for so many years, is finally reunited, Yosef and his brothers, and of course Yaakov, with his beloved son Yosef, is finally uh, reunited. So... It's a very moving parasha. It's a very powerful parasha. It's a very significant parasha. Uh, when we look at the um, when we when we're looking at Jewish history, when we're looking at the book of Bereshit, and uh, all of the uh, twists and turns that have brought us to this point, very significant parasha in terms of the uh, in terms of the you know the unfolding narrative of Yosef and the brothers and. Almost bringing that to a conclusion. I wouldn't say that it's brought to a conclusion quite yet, but it's moving along in that direction. And so as we've been um, trying to do, striving to do in this year's uh, series of parasha classes, focusing on aspects of the parasha that are not the typical subject of discussion, I just wanted to make a, a couple of observations first before we do that. We know that the uh, the parasha before this Miketz is uh, remarkable is noteworthy for con- for ending on a cliffhanger which is very very unusual we don't really find any other place in the Torah perhaps you could say that uh, the story of the Makot of the plagues in Egypt kind of ends on a cliffhanger but you don't find anywhere else in the Torah where there is a cliffhanger a literal cliffhanger where uh, where a situation is hanging in the balance. To this level, that Binyamin has been framed for the crime of stealing the cup of Tafnat Paneach, this Egyptian, that he doesn't realize is his own brother, and he's about to be taken as a slave for life by this Egyptian overlord, and uh, we don't know what's going to happen. And of course, Yehuda offers that all of them uh, be taken as slaves rather than return to their father without Binyamin, but uh, the overlord, Yosef, secretly, Yosef, uh, insists that no, that would be unjust, that would be unfair. The only right thing to do is for the criminal alone to suffer, and that means keeping Binyamin and sending everybody home. So it's a cliffhanger, and suddenly in this week's parasha, we find that the parasha opens with, with Yehuda making his impassioned plea to, his, uh, <coughs> to, to Yosef <coughs> not to keep Binyamin, to allow Binyamin to return home, and to take him instead, to take Yehuda instead in place of his brother. And um, there's a very, of course, remarkable exchange here. There's a lot of debate and discussion. I think we touched upon it just a little um, last time uh, when we talked about uh, is Yosef to be seen here as bringing about, as trying to facilitate a process of teshuvah, a process of repentance in his brothers. I was arguing last week that, yes, I do believe that that is the case. That's what's happening here. Contrary to what, to what some other commentaries or commentators, I should say, uh, modern especially, uh, have argued that, no, Yosef really wasn't involved in trying to orchestrate some repentance on his, you know, uh, to, to sort of like extract repentance from his brothers. No, that's not what was happening. Some argue that... Uh, that on the contrary, that wouldn't be the place of Yosef. And Yosef was just trying to see if Binyamin was, 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 was safe and was trying to perhaps even keep Binyamin with him and uh, take revenge on his brothers or whatever. Um, there's a lot of, um, uh, of different modern interpretations of the story, but I still uh, stand by what I said last week, that I believe that it's very clear t- that Yosef 
based upon his dreams, had an understanding uh, that it was his oper- it was his job. It was his responsibility to see to it that the dreams were fulfilled. Just like he saw that the dreams of Paro required a human response, um, he understood that dreams uh, lay before us a certain potential, but we have to be the ones to actualize that potential. And so here Yosef really is um, playing the part, the active part. In this way, he is being an agent of God. He doesn't see himself as playing God, but he's playing an agent of God, bringing about the Teshuvah of his brothers. And I think that that's why we could see here that even after Yehuda makes his uh, argument, it says, Yosef was not able to hold himself back. Meaning, that suggests to me that Yosef still wasn't 100% sure that his brothers had, uh, had reached a level of complete repentance. Why? Because it, they didn't make the final breakthrough, which I had argued last week, and I, I still suspect that Yosef's ultimate goal was that his brothers should recognize him, should realize who he was, because that would demonstrate that, in fact, they had overcome the blind spot that, let, that led them to this point to begin with. What led them to this point was that they couldn't believe that Yosef could really be a leader. They couldn't believe that Yosef would really, really had the potential that his own father saw in him. They thought that Yosef was an egomaniac. They thought that Yosef was selfish. They thought, thought that Yosef had delusions of grandeur. And they believed that sending him off to Egypt meant that he would never amount to anything. So they could not believe, no matter what kind of signs, signals, hints, Yosef was sending to his brothers throughout this entire ordeal, whether it was knowingly order of the ages of his brothers, whether it was his obvious compassion for his brothers, whether it was sending the money back with them and then making up some story that didn't really make any sense, that somehow magically the money had been returned to their bags, or the fact that Yosef did not sit with the Egyptians at the meal, which indicates again that he was not actually an Egyptian. All of these signals and hints, his mention of fear of God a couple of times, uh, all of these things should have pointed them in the direction of realizing that Yosef was Yosef, that the person standing in front of them was Yosef, but they didn't see it. And I think that was really what Yosef wanted. Yosef wanted them to be able to, they, he wanted to dawn on them. When all of these different puzzle pieces are really put together, the truth would be obvious to any third party, but they could not see it. They couldn't imagine that Yosef would achieve what the man in front of them had achieved. Um, and therefore, they were not able to see what was right in front of them. And I think that, that was why Yosef um, wanted really to continue. He didn't want to drop the, 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 uh, the whole charade at this point. <clears throat> but he did anyway because he wasn't expecting the uh, level of devotion, the level of, uh, uh, of self-sacrifice that he saw in Yehuda was so impressive and his commitment to his father and to the future of the family was so profound that even Yosef, even though Yosef was not, uh, didn't, had not achieved the goal that he set out to achieve, um, which was to bring his brothers to the point where they recognized him for who he was, uh, which is what he believed his dreams dictated. Nevertheless, he was satisfied enough that, uh, you know, that, his, that his brother Yehuda, who was the leader of the family at that point, had such a sense of self-sacrifice and commitment to his father and to the unity of the family and to the future of the Jewish people that he was willing to give himself up rather than stop Benjamin from going home. This is, and this, on this, Yosef had to, uh, had to give up the charade and confess who he was, and at this point, we see uh, something that actually I pointed out on Shabbat in my speech on Shabbat, but I wanted to just reiterate it for the sake of the learning, for the sake of those who weren't there on Shabbat, and also for the sake, I guess, of the recording for people who will listen to this afterwards, that um, there, I think it's an important point to make, that it says, that, you know, the first thing that Yosef asks his brothers 
when he reveals his identity is Ha'od Avichai, is my father still alive? And on the surface, this question is really bizarre because this question uh, throughout the entire interaction between Yosef and his brothers since they first came to Egypt, the premise was that the father was alive. After all, when they first came down to get grain from Egypt, they said that the reason why Binyamin, that, well, the reason why their youngest brother was not with them was because he was with his father at home. And when they came back with Binyamin, and Binyamin is for, and, and, and for the very first time, when Yosef sees them, he says, is your father alive? And they say, yes, he's alive. And then after, after the, uh, the framing of Binyamin for the theft of the cup, when Yosef secretly hides the cup in the bag of Binyamin so that his men can chase after the brothers and bring Binyamin back and claim that he has to stay with Yosef and he's not allowed to go home because he's a criminal. When all that happens, what is Yehuda's argument in the beginning of the parasha? The argument that Yehuda gives why Binyamin should be allowed to go home despite seemingly being guilty of a crime and why Yehuda should be taken instead is so that their father will not die because his grief, his sorrow, if he loses Binyamin, will be so overwhelming that he won't be able to live anymore. And therefore, please send Binyamin home and please take me instead. But what does that show you? That argument makes zero sense if Yaakov is not alive anymore. Obviously, Yaakov must be alive. Otherwise, why is Yehuda giving his own life up, his own freedom up to send Binyamin home if his father is not, no longer living? It just doesn't make any sense. The whole premise of Yehuda's uh, self-sacrifice is that his father is still alive. So why would Yosef say, Ha'od avichai, is my father still alive when he reveals his identity. And so I had suggested that in order to understand this, we have to understand that the word life is not simply biological life. It doesn't mean survival. Is my father surviving? Does my father have a pulse? And is he able to breathe? Does he have a heartbeat? And so on. That's not what it means to be alive. To be alive means to have a sense of purpose. To be alive means to have a reason for which one is living, to have a mission, to have a drive to have inspiration, to have hope, to have something that makes life worth living. When we tell a person, you know what, you need to get a life. You know, we don't mean that the person is dead. We mean that they don't have a purpose in their life, that they don't have something meaningful to live for. When do we say get a life to somebody is when they seem so pathetic. They seem so petty. They're so occupied with trivial things. They would say to them, you know what, get a life, man. You need to have some higher aspiration that is you know, moving you. You can't be caught up in this nonsense. And so having a life, when we talk about chayim, we talk about life, we're talking about genuine life. When we say the Torah, we say that the, that the Torah is our life. And throughout the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu always says, this is your life. The Torah is your life and the length of your days. It doesn't mean that it is the, that instead of eating, drinking, and breathing, you can have Torah. It's not talking about the physical existence. What it means is it gives a person purpose in life. And without meaning and purpose to strive for, life just becomes survival. It doesn't become something that is really uh, enjoyable and fulfilling and satisfying on a daily basis. Really that something of substance, a life of substance is ha- true chayim. And that's why, as I had mentioned on Shabbat, the rabbis say, and I, I am very fond of this quote, and I quote it a lot of times, that the rabbis say that tzaddikim, that the righteous people, even in their death, are called chayim, they're called alive. Whereas the wicked, even when they are alive, 
They are called dead. What does it mean? It means that a person who is truly alive, their soul is alive and is uh, and is in, uplifted and their soul is engaged. That soul continues to exist after the, the expiration of the body. Even after the person dies, the body dies, that element of the person, the essence of the person continues to live on. That person is still very much alive. Whereas a person who is wicked, meaning a person who is preoccupied with the trivial, with the material, with the fleeting, with the petty, that person is not alive even when their heart is beating. That is not a true life. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, as the saying goes, everybody dies, but not everybody lives. It's uh, a true life is not something that, um, that everybody enjoys, even if they have the gift of biological life. They don't necessarily make it into meaningful life. So when Yosef says to the brothers, Od Avi Chai, is my father still alive? I don't interpret that in the, in the literal sense, in the physical sense, because that would make Yehuda's speech nonsensical. But I interpret it in the way that the rabbis interpret the meaning of life. And I interpret it in the way the Rambam has a beautiful chapter in the Guide for the Perplexed where he talks about this. Genuine life means purpose, means spiritual existence, the, the life of the soul, the life of the mind, the life of the spirit. That is real life. And so that kind of life is what Yosef was asking. Does my father still have a life of meaning? Does my father still have a life of substance? When, I was, when you thought I was an Egyptian and I asked you, was my father alive? You answered it in a technical sense, biologically. Yes, he's still alive. But does he still have something worth living for? Has he been able to live meaningfully and purposefully in my absence? Or was he crushed by the trauma of losing um, his son. And that is really what Yosef is asking them the second time around. And a way to see that that, are, that, that interpretation is a solid interpretation is if you look forward um, to what it says about Yaakov, when Yaakov hears that Yosef is indeed alive and he sees the wagons that have come to transport him and his household to Egypt, it says, Vatechi Oach Yaakov Avihem that the spirit of Yaakov, their father, came back to life. And the rabbis say that all the years that Yaakov was without Yosef and they were and, and believed Yosef to be dead, all those years he didn't have any prophecy from God. He was too depressed. And a person who's too depressed cannot receive divine inspiration. So the reawakening, the true life of Yaakov that returned at that moment. Yes, he was biologically alive and he was surviving, but there was definitely something missing from life uh, in the truest sense of the word uh, until this moment. That the spirit of Yaakov came back to him and he was able to live again. And the Rambam actually says, and actually the rabbis say in a couple of places in the Talmud, that a person who is a prophet cannot receive prophecy uh, in a state of depression. They can only receive prophecy in a state of joy and in a state of satisfaction. And the reason um, is because a person who is sad is really occupied with the self. The emotions of the person are turned inward. They're experiencing self-pity. They're not able to enjoy life. They're not able to engage socially. They're not able to... Uh, they're not able to participate in activities wholeheartedly. And that's why depression is 
uh, stereo, you know, it typically involves a person wants to stay home all the time. They don't want to see anybody. They don't want to talk to anybody. They don't enjoy the activities in life that they once enjoyed and so on because they're wrapped up in their inner world. They've withdrawn from the world. And that's why in Navi, a prophet who has to be open to receiving communication from beyond himself, from Hashem, that prophet has to be someone who's not depressed, has to be someone who's happy, who's open, who's prepared to receive such a communication. And that requires simchat, requires joy. So during the time that Yaakov was preoccupied with his loss, all those years, he wasn't able to receive any prophecy. And at this moment, finally, he's able to receive prophecy again. In fact, the Rambam writes that the reason why we don't see any prophecy nowadays is because anybody who would be capable uh, who would reach the level where they might be capable of attaining some kind of prophetic inspiration would be so depressed seeing the downtrodden state of the Jewish people, seeing the exile of the Jewish people, seeing the unfortunate state of our world that they wouldn't be able to muster the strength and the presence of mind to be able to experience prophecy. So joy is a prerequisite. So up until now, Yaakov has not been able to experience any prophecy. Now that ability has been restored to him. And so Yosef, in asking about life, is really asking him about that point, about, the, um, about whether, or asking the brothers, rather, about that, that particular detail, uh, you know, that, ask, that element, I should say, of life, not the biological question of life, which obviously... Um, is a, uh, you know, he must be alive physically for Yehuda's whole argument to have made sense. Now we find that uh, further on in the parasha, Yosef is very um, intent on making sure that the Jewish people are located and, and settle in Goshen and not in the mainstream of Egyptian society. Now this is very interesting and in fact, he even instructs the brothers. He tells them when they go to Paro, oh, make sure you emphasize that your trade is that you are shepherds because the Egyptians find the shepherds to be disgusting and abominable. They don't want anything to do with them they, because they, they consider it to be against their religious principles. And therefore, if you tell Paro that that is what you do, that's what you've always done from time immemorial. This is what our parents did. This is what our ancestors did. So then they will, he will put you in Goshen which is a pasture, a place of pasture, and he will not uh, expect you to live in the main city. Now, this is very, very interesting, very important, because what's fascinating here is that this shows us something about Yosef, that even though Yosef would seem to be an assimilated Jew, we would call them, quote-unquote, by the standards of today, because he's become part of the Egyptian machine. He is, uh, you know, he's literally the second-in-command of the entire country and functionally, practically, the king of Egypt in many ways, and yet he recognizes he's been able to preserve his uniquely Jewish identity, set of principles, ideology, view of the world, and so on. As I mentioned last time in our or last time, I was pointing out <clears throat> that you see that Yosef was not simply somebody who interpreted dreams and then took over the country, but he was somebody who actually instructed and taught everybody uh, with whom he had contact. He instructed and taught Potiphar. He instructed and taught the head of the jail. He instructed and taught Paro. He was educating them in a certain way of looking at the world, in his concept of Hashem 
and the concept of what that means about human beings, that God gives knowledge to human beings so they can use it and they can act on it and they can adapt to it and they can improve themselves and their situation through using that wisdom that Hashem makes available to them. So Yosef was really educating the people in Egypt over all these years, and he retained his commitment to God and he was trying to sanctify God's name to the extent of his ability, even as an Egyptian official. But because of that, he finds himself in a complicated position because, and we're going to see that this plays itself out even more in next week's parasha with making funeral arrangements for his father and, uh, and for himself, because politically speaking, he is a leader of Egypt, an official in the Egyptian government and, and therefore an Egyptian national, basically. Uh, but spiritually, in his inner life, he identifies fully as a Jew. So what does that mean? As we've said before, we said in Parashat Chayi Saram, we talked about that, that where a person chooses to be buried is really their final statement about who they are. And most Jews, even if they're very estranged from their faith, want to be buried in a Jewish cemetery and want to be laid to rest in accordance with the tradition and among their people. It's very important even to Jews that may not show much affiliation um, in other areas of life. So Yosef is someone who, want, who knows that he wants to be buried in, in, in uh, uh, Israel ultimately and Yaakov, of course, commands, commands Yosef to make sure he's going to be buried there and we're going to see more about that in next week's Shi'ur. But the point is that it's politically complicated because Yosef has to straddle the fence. He has to be an Egyptian official, an Egyptian national, a representative of Egypt, fully accepted by the Egyptian people. And at the same time, they kind of have this lurking suspicion that he's not 100% on their side, that he does have a different set of values, a different view of the world and different ideas and a different ethnic and cultural background and different religious um, uh, orientation. So there is some suspicion surrounding Yosef. And so Yosef has always kept himself sort of um, at a distance from his fellow Egyptians. We see that he doesn't eat with them. He doesn't dine with them. He he does keep a certain... Um, uh, a certain uh, space between himself and the Egyptians, or they keep it between themselves and him. Uh, and he needs to ensure that the same space is kept between his family and the Egyptian people, because the Egyptian people, we see that Paro is extremely happy. It says in this parashan, Vayigash, Paro is extremely happy when he hears that Yosef's family has come. Very, very happy. Yosef sent everybody out of the room when he revealed his identity to his brothers because he didn't want anybody to hear the story about what had happened, about the sale, about how they sold them into slavery and all this, and how they were apologetic and all of the tears. He didn't want them to see all that. But what he did want Paro to know was that his family had come from Israel to Egypt. Now, why was that significant? Because Paro is very happy because this normalizes Yosef. Could you imagine Yosef, imagine a person with no clear family background. Nobody knows where they came from. Nobody knows who their family is, who their relatives are, anything about their childhood, anything about their, their roots, and they emerge from nowhere in a foreign land and suddenly they become the leader of that foreign land or second in command of that foreign land. But all along, Yosef is kind of a man of mystery. Nobody really knows who he is. And there's also this suspicion surrounding him because of his unique ideas and his ideology that clearly differentiates him, his knowledge, his wisdom, and his view of the world that differentiate him from the Egyptians. So they look at him as a very unusual and mysterious character, bringing his parents 
and, and, and remember that he also was in jail, so he's an ex-convict, there, there's all, and, and he was a slave. There are all kinds of stains on his reputation, debatable whether they, you know, whether they were fairly, uh, you know, were there fair stains on his reputation, but those, those stains are there. So what happens is that <coughs> Yosef's bro- family coming and joining him normalizes Yosef. Now they see, oh, he has a father, he has brothers, he has a family, we see where he's from, we can ask about his childhood, whatever. The point is that he seems like a normal person now. This is very, very, uh, a source of great uh, pleasure to Paro, he's very happy to hear about it. It says, Vaitav, and and also the servants of Paro, meaning Paro's court, was very happy that Yosef would now be seen as a normal person in a familial context, but... Now the question becomes, what will happen with his family? So the naturally, I think Yosef expected, Paro would of course want Yosef's family to live in the capital city, to live uh, with the other uh, government officials, because that was where Yosef was. And that would show, that would be a, uh, that would be the um, most uh, natural and expected course of action of Yosef and of Paro, that the family of such a distinguished person as Yosef should also be living in the capital, should be living with Yosef, and should be a part of the court in a way of the you know of the Egyptian uh, of the Egyptian court. And we see that that would be the natural inclination. So Yosef wants to prevent that. He tells his brothers to uh, say what their profession is that they are uh, only here temporarily. We only came to stay here temporarily. We're not going to be settling permanently. Don't get the wrong idea. We would just like pasture for our cattle. Um, and also to, and, and that would also dissuade Paro from having them live in the capital city. It, it, it would convince him to, uh, to send, the, uh, send the brothers uh, to, to st- settle in Goshen, which had ample pasture. But still then, Paro says to Yosef, if there are some exceptionally good uh, shepherds among your brothers, tell me so they can be shepherds. Um, they can be sarim mikne. They can be like the heads of my, you know, of the cattle that belong to me. In other words, he wants to give them positions of prominence and importance in his kingdom, just like Yosef has, because this again lends honor and respectability and legitimacy to Yosef. And Paro wants to take advantage of that. But Yosef, in order to prevent that and preempt it, tells the, st- the brothers to emphasize their role, their profession, so they'll end up in Goshen. But what does this show you? This shows you that Yosef is concerned about keeping the Jewish identity distinct in Egypt. And again, shows you that Yosef is not somebody who's lost his sense of his unique heritage or his unique mission. Just like we saw last week in all of the ways he tries to sanctify God's name and teach about God in Egypt. Also here, he wants to make sure that the Jewish people remain or the Am Yisrael or B'nai Yisrael now, the sons of of Yaakov, keep their own unique identity by having their own geographical location in, uh, in Egypt. And that's going to be Goshen. And we know that even in the times of the Makot, the main Jewish neighborhood was still Goshen, even though the Jews had spread out and eventually started living in all areas of Egypt as they assimilated before the time of the, you know, during, during and before and during the time of the enslavement of the Jews, they had begun to assimilate into the culture of Egypt. But the main home base of the Jewish people was always Goshen in Egypt. And that was set up from the beginning, clearly by Yosef, in order to make sure that they didn't feel that they were being swallowed up. We also see that when Yaakov was on his way down to Egypt, he gets a prophecy from Hashem where Hashem says, don't worry about going down into Egypt. Yosef is going to put his hands on your eyes, meaning you're going to die with your son, reunited with your son. 
and I'll eventually bring you out of Egypt, and don't worry, this is not going to be a disaster that you think it is. And Yosef, with that same idea in mind, doesn't want his father to believe or his brothers to believe that this is a surrender of the whole Abrahamic mission of creating a distinct nation that will sanctify God's name. No, you're going to have your own separate geographical location that belongs to you. And interestingly, the rabbis sort of allude to this idea as well because it says, This is in the sixth aliyah of the parasha. Vayigash, it is chapter 46, it is pasuk, it is verse 28. That Yaakov sent Yehuda ahead, Shalach Lefanavel Yosef, Lahot Lefanav Goshna. He sent him to, to Yosef to, now literally, Lahot Lefanav means to set the direction, to be the one who was going to set up and make all the arrangements in Goshen before his father arrived. In other words, Yehuda went ahead of, to make all of the, uh, to make sure that everything was set up for them to settle in Goshen. But what, but the rabbi see the word Lahot Lefanav, that Leorot uh, also has the meaning of to teach. So the rabbis interpret, and Rashi quotes in his comments here, Leorot lo betalmud shemisham that he made a betalmud, that Yehuda went and he established a bet midrash. He established a yeshiva, so to speak, in Mitzrayim, from which instruction would go forth. What is the idea of the rabbis taking this word, Lehorot Lefanav? What does it mean uh, that, Yo- that Yehuda created a house of study in Egypt? A house of study for whom? It was just their family. What does it mean that there should be a house of study that instruction and teaching should go out from this house of study? Go out to whom? Who's going to be receiving study and instruction from the Jewish people when they settle in Egypt? But I think that the, the rabbis are picking up on the fact that the Torah used the word for preparation, Lehorot, to teach and to instruct meaning that the Jewish people, that, that Yaakov and Yehuda and the brothers all recognized that the first priority that they had was to remain committed to the tradition of Avraham Avinu and Yitzchak Avinu that they had received and to continue, continue learning the ways of God, studying the ways of God and living by and teaching others, sanctifying God's name by demonstrating to them the wisdom and the uh, the ways of God, and so this is what it means. The of Goshna that the preparations and it, a, an average person's sense of what preparation means when they come to settle in a new place are practical things. Where are the houses going to be? Who's going to live in which house? Uh, how many bedrooms are necessary? How many bathrooms? What size? How many acres are, are there going to be? Is there what are what are the kids going to do? Is are there schools? I don't know. Whatever practical matters, people uh, and arrangements people make when they really locate uh, to a new area. These are the, uh, the, the technicalities and the complications of moving to a new area. That's what the simple meaning would mean, okay, to make sure that there are beds, that there are rooms, that there are houses, that there are, there's sufficient space for all of their things and where the different things will go, where their cattle will go. All of these practicalities, yes, Yehuda had to take care of, but the fact that the Torah uses the word lehorot, which also means to instruct and to teach, means that it wasn't enough for them to consider the practical elements and demands of physical life, which in any person would consider when they're moving to a new place, especially a new country, about the practicalities of life, but that they were thinking about their mission, about the mission of studying the ways of God, teaching the ways of God, exemplifying the ways of God in their conduct and in their speech. This, is, this was just as much a concern for the Jewish family, the first Jewish family uh, moving into Egypt as the practical considerations were. So the idea that he had to set up a bit midrash before they came meant that he had to make sure that there was going to be 
uh, that, you know, from the very outset, that arrangements were made, that preparations were made, that consideration was given to how they would continue their spiritual and religious and intellectual life in the land of Mitzrayim, not just the, the sustenance of their physical life. Like we said before about Chaim, about life. Life in Egypt cannot just be physical life and survival. It has to be true life. And that for them means the relationship with God continues, the relationship with learning continues, the relationship with teaching continues. And that's why it says not only that it's a place for them to study, but it's a place that learning will come forth from it, meaning they will continue to try to sanctify God's name in the world in their new base or from their new base in Mitzrayim. So that just gives us a sense of what kind of preparation this entailed. But I think these Midrashim that the rabbis uh, weave into the text are trying to highlight for us how important it was that the, um, that the Jewish people consider their, and how important it is for us to look and see how the Jewish people considered not just their physical survival um, in, under different circumstances and sometimes under very trying circumstances, but also how they considered their mission, their spiritual mission, their divine mission um, in all of these cases as well. So Yehuda goes to set up a community. This community has to be a distinct community. It can't be a community that is submerged in the impurity and idolatry of Egypt, but it has to be a distinct community with its own identity where its unique principles and values can be lived and can be learned and can be taught. That is, the, that is why Yosef from the beginning wants to make sure his family is not pulled into the political world of Egypt where he is, but is able to settle in a separate place in Goshen. Um, and, uh, and that is why Yehuda comes, he comes to set up a, a community, basically, a, uh, a circumstance for his family where the spiritual life, not just the physical life, will continue. So this was of uh, critical importance to Yosef as well as Yehuda on both sides. And, um, and so, when the reunion happens between Yosef and, uh, and Israel, his father, and notice that he uses the word Yisrael, which we mentioned last week and we've mentioned before, is always an indication that <clears throat> there is some aspect of y- Yaakov's activity here that is not Yaakov as an individual, <clears throat> but Yaakov as patriarch, as the founder of a nation, because he had these two identities within him. It says, he appeared to him, and he appeared to him. So it's very vague. Rashi tries to unpack this. And most of the commentaries seem to agree, Yosef near Al Aviv, that it was Yosef became visible to his father. And it says, and he cried on his shoulder. And then it says, od, and he cried on his shoulder even more. So the question is, uh, who was the one crying more? Um, and who was the one crying on his shoulder? So the way that Rashi interprets it here is that Yaakov lo nafal al Yosef velod nishako. That even though Yos- that it was Yosef that cried on his father's shoulder and could not stop crying, but he, meaning Yaakov, did not cry on the shoulder of Yosef and did not kiss Yosef. Now here's another example of where the rabbis bring in an idea that really should be, um, is obviously what we call anachronistic. It doesn't fit with the timeline of the Torah, but they're trying to teach us an idea. It says that, that Yaakov at the moment that he was hugging Yosef was saying kriyat shema. He was saying Shema Yisrael. Now, what does it mean for Yaakov to be saying Shema Yisrael at the very moment? He couldn't have said it on the way down before he got to see Yosef. Finally, he had to say it at the moment that he's seeing Yosef, so he cannot kiss Yosef because he has to be saying Shema Yisrael. It's a very strange idea. 
Why, where did the rabbis get this idea that Yaakov Avinu was saying Shema Yisrael in the middle of, uh, uh, of, reu- uh, of his reunion with Yosef and therefore he had to hold back from his emotional reaction to a son that he hasn't seen in decades? Because of that, the very unusual suggestion. Where are the rabbis picking this up and what are the rabbis trying to convey with this concept that, that Yaakov was, was reading the Shema at that moment? I think that the... Uh, that when we when we look more deeply into it, what is the Shema Yisrael? We know that there's another famous story that they say about the Shema Yisrael. That uh, now, obviously, the passages of Shema Yisrael were not introduced to the Jewish people until much later, until the times of Moshe Rabbeinu. They're actually in the Book of Dvarim, and towards the end of Moshe Rabbeinu's life, the Kriyat Shema. So how could so obviously Yaakov could not have actually known the words of Kriyat Shema themselves? We would assume because they're written in the Torah much later, far long after, and they are re- referring to uh, concepts that that Yaakov could relate to, but not you know. But those psukim were not revealed until the times of Moshe Rabbeinu, so he wouldn't have had those psukim available to him at the time. So what does it mean? that? And, and we know that there's a story also that at the end of his life, Yaakov Avinu gathers all of his sons together and he said to them, <clears throat> maybe there's one of you who doubts the oneness of God. Maybe there's one of you who's gone astray. And they also do Shema Yisrael, meaning Shema Avinu Yisrael. Listen to us, O Israel, talking to their father. Hashem is our God, Hashem is one. So the, the, that Midrash and then it says that because of that, Yaakov said, He praised Hashem for, he thanked God for the blessing of seeing that every one of his children remained true to God to the end and did not have any doubt or any, um, any conflict in their devotion to God. So that Shema Yisrael is actually said by the sons to their father, Yisrael slash Yaakov. Here it's Yaakov himself saying the Shema Yisrael. But what does the Shema Yisrael signify? The Shema Yisrael signifies the idea, obviously, of God's unity. But it's the idea that the Jewish people are, that Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, that Hashem is our God, that what, what it means is that Yaakov saw in this reunion with Yosef the completion of all the fact, the idea that all of his sons were united in the service of God, that all of his sons were united in this Jewish destiny of continuing the, the transmission of knowledge and awareness of God and the values of Judaism from generation to generation, that nobody was lost. When he saw that Yosef was still alive, that was his moment to reflect on the oneness of God and the unity of God, but also the unity of the family as servants of God. Shema Yisrael Hashem Eloheinu Hashem Echad. That Hashem is our God, all of us. And that we once again can are, are committed to that uh, mission of serving God as a family without anyone uh, falling off the track. And that was, so for Yaakov, what are the rabbis really trying to say about Yaakov? That Yaakov was saying the Shema and it was Yosef that was crying. That Yaakov saw a much greater significance. He didn't just see. And this is the incredible thing about the Avot and something that the Rambam actually says about the patriarchs when he speaks about them in the Moran Nebuchim, when he speaks about them in the Guide for the Perplexed in his philosophical work, he says that one of the things about the Avot that made them superior to all the other prophets, you would think that the prophets that came later that had the benefit of having the Torah already, having the mitzvot already, having so many, you know, so many shoulders of giants to stand on of prophets that had come before them, you would think that they would be in a better position, but the Avot were the greatest of all. And the Rambam says that, but made the Avot unique, what made Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov different, even superior to anybody that Moshe Rabbeinu, he invokes, he always mentions the Zechud of the patriarchs. He mentions Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. What, was, what made them so remarkable? He said that 
most people, the Rambam says, most people, even a great Navi, has times that they are involved with the practical matters of life and times that they're involved with God. When they're involved with the practical matters, they have to give their full attention to practical matters. They have to focus on their livelihood. They have to focus on the, uh, whatever comings and goings are necessary. But, and, and then when they're able to clear their mind and clear their head, they focus on Hashem. But the Avot, even at the moment that they were engaged in practical activity, even at the moment that they were tending to their sheep, or they were making business deals, or they were engaged in political negotiation, whatever it was, their mind was on God all the time. And he says, this is something that we can only imagine, that we can aspire to, but we'll never reach. Nobody can, can practically speaking, no, no ordinary mortal would reach that level that Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov reached of full engagement and consciousness of God at every moment, even when they were doing mundane activities. He said, this is an ideal. We can, he said, we can aspire to hopefully that when we're praying, we're focusing on God. And when we're learning, we're focusing on God. Most of the time when we're praying, our mind is checked out for 90% of the time then too. He says, we, during, even during our service of God, have trouble focusing on Hashem. But the avot, even in the moments of practical mundane activity, were focused on God. This is what made them unique. And so Yaakov, at that moment, I think what the rabbis are trying to convey to us is that at that moment, uh, Yaakov saw in his reunion with Yosef something much bigger than either of them individually, something much bigger than his emotions as a father reunited with his son, something bigger than the emotions of a son reunited with the father. He saw the vision of the Jewish people as a united family in the service of God, continuing on this tradition of uh, knowledge of God and of his ways and passing it from generation to generation. He saw this being reconstituted. He saw this being rejuvenated. And that's why he was so excited, not just because he had the emotional joy of knowing that his son was still alive. Like before when it said, that when Yaakov heard that Yosef was still alive, he became alive again. He came back to life. It doesn't mean just because he had the emotional satisfaction of knowing that his son was alive. It was because now he was able to understand and see how all of these pieces fit together, how indeed it would be true that the, uh, all of his children would uh, constitute the nation of Israel. All of that really was going to be fulfilled. When he was, previously, he couldn't imagine this working without Yosef. He couldn't imagine this succeeding without Yosef. And because he couldn't visualize an alternative, he was stuck in a rut and he couldn't, um, he couldn't even entertain the possibility of a future for the Jewish people. He really felt that it had been stalled completely by the absence of Yosef. And maybe he had hopes that Binyamin would rise up and would become like another Yosef, but he didn't know what to do. So when he found out that Yosef was still alive, that meant that the plan still had uh, still had a, a promise and still had an opportunity to be fulfilled um, as it was originally envisioned. And when he saw Yosef, he realized that he, would, he had been right. That, that just affirmed his conviction that, um, that now with Yosef back in the saddle, so to speak, and Yosef reunited with the family, that initial vision of the future of the Jewish people could indeed be realized with all of them together, all of his children unified in serving God and creating the nation of Israel. So when Yaakov saw that, that was what, um, that was why when he reunites with Yosef, the rabbis have him saying the Kriyat Shema because he is um, in, the, uh, in the state of, uh, 
uh, of reflection on his situation. And that what made, what made the Avot so great, that, that even in a moment that most of us would be overwhelmed with and submerged in the emotion, he was able to see the bigger picture at that moment of the divine plan being realized and fulfilled. The dreams of Yosef from so many years before that he would be the leader of the Jewish people and that he would be instrumental in securing the future of the Jewish people. He saw all of that coming uh, you know, to, into fruition. And that's why, he, uh, that, that's why he was saying, it says he was saying the Shema at that time. He was seeing God's plan realized before his eyes. He didn't get lost in his own personal emotional uh, you know, emotional uh, sort of um, uh, drama there, like the way that we sometimes do. And I just want to make one last point, since we're on that topic of what the Rambam said about the Avot, that the Avot, even when they were involved in mundane things, are involved with, um, are, are engaged with God. But we, who are, uh, who are, uh, less than that, we should at least, at the very least, try to focus in when we are serving God on the meaning of what we're doing and when we're learning to give it our full energy and when we're praying to give it our full energy, our full attention. And so there's an interesting comment of Ibn Ezra. He talks about tzitzit, when it, when it talks about the mitzvah tzitzit, and he says that many people say that a person should wear tzitzit, especially during the tefillah. In fact, the Rambam, the Ibn Ezra didn't know the Rambam, but the Rambam in Mishneh Torah says that it's very important for a person to wear tzitzit and tefillin if, they, if it's appropriate, also tefillin during the prayers, uh, because these all help a person to focus and have greater kavanah, greater concentration and engagement with the prayer. And so the Ibn Ezra in the Chumash actually dis- disagrees with this idea. He doesn't mention the Rambam because he didn't have access to the Rambam's work, but he says there are some people that say that a person should wear tzitzit during the prayers. He says, but that's not true. It's not tzitzit during the prayers. During the prayer, you don't need tzitzit. Tzitzit is to prevent you from going astray in your mind, from going astray after your heart and after your eyes. But, but a person during the prayer, that's the least of their worries. When does a person need tzitzit, the Ibn Ezra says, when he's out on the street, when he's not praying, when he's not learning. That's when he needs a tzitzit. So it's a good question. So he says, the people who say that a person should wear tzitzit during prayer, it's the opposite. They should wear tzitzit when they're not in prayer. That's when they need the reminder. What's the answer? Why does the Rambam and most of the other rabbis say that the time to wear, the most important time to wear talit and the most important time to wear tefillin is during prayer? What's the reason? Because, and I think it goes back to what the Rambam said about the avot, that we look at the avot as ideals to aspire to. We see that they're able, even in their mundane lives, to keep God before their eyes all the time. Their mind is always on God, and they see in everything that happens to them, their emotional ups and downs, their family dramas, their business, their practical affairs. In everything they see, the plan of God unfolding. That's all they see is the big picture all the time. But for the rest of us, when we're involved in practical things, if we try to be focusing on God at the same time, we'll end up with nothing because we, won't ha- we don't have the ability, we don't have the, the depth of consciousness of God to be able to do that. But what can we do? We should make the most out of the times that we are engaged with God. Meaning, when we're praying, we should give it our all. When we're learning, we should give it our all. When we're saying brachot, we should give it our all of our concentration and focus. We need to make the best out of the moments that are religious moments for us. We're not going to be on the level necessarily. Hopefully we can. But, you know, for most of us, we're not going to be on the level. We're in the, in the midst of our mundane activities. We're going to see the hand of God or we're going to be seeing it as somehow bringing us closer to God. But at least when we're praying, we should try to make it as meaningful and uplifting of an experience as possible. And that's why I think the, most of the rabbis didn't agree with the Ibn Ezra. They said, no, 
When should you wear tzitzit? When should you wear tefillin? When you're praying. Because since that is a time where a person is primarily engaged with standing before Hashem, that is a time we want to make the most out of it. So we throw everything at it. We, get, we, we put in tzitzit, tefillin, and everything else that we can to make sure that those moments, that hour that the person is praying, he gets the absolute most out of that experience of that hour. Maybe the rest of the day he'll be distracted, but at least at that time where he's supposed to be engaged with Hashem, he'll be a hundred percent engaged with Hashem. And so this is an, so when we look at the we look at the avot, they teach us to be humble about our level. We're not on their level where every single aspect of their life they see in the light of the divine. But at the very least, when we're praying, when we're saying the Shema, when we're learning Torah, when we're saying Bachot, when we're doing mitzvot, let's strive to make the most out of it, as if we're wearing talit and tefillin when we're doing those things. In other words, that we have all of the energies that we can focused on the activities in front of us when we're listening to the Torah being read, when we're listening to the Haftarah being read, when we're listening to the prayer being repeated in the synagogue, any time that we have some mitzvah going on around us that we can give our full attention, these are the moments that are the sacred moments for us. So we should make sure not to shortchange ourselves and lose out on them. Um, and maybe little by little, we'll get to the point where even the mundane activities will have a deeper meaning for us too. The Rambam actually says when he speaks to his, um, one of his students about how to develop as a, as a, in religious life, he says the first thing you do is when you're reading the Shema or when you're reading the Torah, or when you're listening to the Torah in synagogue, or when you're reading the Amidah, just pay attention to the words. Work on that for a few years. Just at least pay attention to the words you're saying when you say the prayers. Something so basic, but our attention is so weak and we're so distractible that we don't even do that. Requires a lot to build up. And then when we look at somebody like Yaakov Avinu, that even at the moment of the greatest emotion, the moment of the greatest drama, so moving and so powerful, even then, he had his mind on God. That really humbles us and reminds us how far of a journey we have ahead of us to become true servants of Hashem. But Bezrat Hashem, we can strive for that, we can yearn for that, and we can step by step come as close to that as possible. So thanks everybody for joining. And Bezrat Hashem, next week we shall continue uh, with the last parasha of, parasha of uh, Sefer Boreshit, which is Parashat Vaychi.